scripture today is from John chapter 9. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, that's toward the end. I don't have a page number. But it's there in the back, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. And continuing on, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found them, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that, that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of God. I never fully realized what it meant to be able to see. I walked in darkness every day. Having been born blind, I spent most of my days begging for alms. There wasn't much else for a blind man to do. People looked down on me because of my blindness. I'd overhear the remarks. It's his fault he was born blind. He must have committed some horrible sin. Or it's because of his parents. What did they do? It made me feel like dirt, like mud. I suffered in silence every day. Some days I felt blind in more ways than one. I had no idea what the future would hold. It seemed I had no purpose in life except to be here as some sort of punishment for some sort of unknown sin. But then you saw me. And what you said and did next changed my life forever. It was an ordinary day. I'd taken up my usual spot by the city gate. A steady stream of people walked by, many ignoring my pleas and my open palms. 
I heard a small group approaching and heard that familiar question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I prepared myself for humiliation once again, for yet another biting remark, but the response surprised me. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What? I was born so that God's work might be displayed through me? I heard the gasps, the questions. Then I heard someone spit on the ground. What was going on? And then someone touched me, smearing something over my eyes. Mud. You, Lord. It was you. Oh, how you spoke with such authority as you bathed my blind eyes with mud. Go, you told me, wash in the pool of Siloam. I went. I didn't know what to expect, but you said that God had a plan, that this was for a purpose. So those first words were the first words I had of hope I had ever received. Of course I would go. When I came up out of those waters, nothing could have prepared me for what happened. Light filled my vision. I could see. I could see. I knew right then that you must be a prophet sent from God and that I wanted to learn from you to be your disciple. Nothing would keep me from declaring your praises, even when, I went, when it meant being driven from the synagogue, kicked out and left out once again. But then you stood in front of me and I saw you for the first time. Do you believe in the Son of Man, you asked? Who is he, sir? I asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. You spoke. You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. I fell before you in worship and shouted out, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. I can see. While Jesus was still in Jerusalem, after the discourse, after the Feast of Tabernacles, he's walking and talking with his disciples, and he sees a man. He sees a man who others have not seen. And in this case, it's a man who had been blind from birth and who had not been able to see. Here, Jesus not only sees the man, he takes initiative to heal the man. Like the man born lame at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus takes initiative to heal. The text tells us that it is Jesus who first notices the man, though it's the disciples who first speak. Rabbi, who sinned, they say, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. What the story comes to tell us is not first and foremost about the blind man, but more about Jesus. You see, all of Jesus' miracles point to who he is and was. John followed Jesus' discourse about being the light of the world with this account of Jesus restoring the sight of a man born blind. The story illustrates the spiritual truth of Christ being the light of the world. As a blind beggar comes to see that Jesus is the Messiah, 
So Jesus offers us not just and offered him not just physical healing, but also spiritual sight. And he gives us spiritual sight through the story as well, helping us to see that he is indeed the light of the world who can provide life and light. The light of the world, Jesus, becomes our light when we put our faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. And it leads to our ability to help people come to see Jesus as well. And so our foundational truth this morning is this. Every follower of Jesus can come to see by seeing who Jesus is and helping other people to see him as well. Let me say that again. Every follower of Jesus can come to see by seeing Jesus and helping other people see him. We first see things about Jesus in this passage. The first is that he sees a man who could not see. I love this part of the passage because Jesus did the seeing while the disciples did the asking and wondering about the implications of his blindness. Jesus sees a man and reaches out to a man who had been born blind. The wording of the following question that the disciples ask, I think, misses the point. Jesus, rather, sees the man first. He's not a question to solve. He's not a conundrum to try to figure out. He's not somebody to just help first and foremost. He is somebody to be seen. Some of us question, do other people see us? You may not have felt seen recently in your life. One of my favorite passages recently as we've been reading through the Bible as a church is the story of Hagar and Abraham's unable to have a child through Sarah. He, he gives Abraham his, her concubine. Hagar's able to have a child and then Sarah gets upset and sends her off. That's not my favorite part of the passage. My favorite part of the passage is Hagar out in the desert with her new child, wondering how God's going to show up and resolve this situation. And God speaks to her. And Hagar simply says, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. Jesus sees a man who I believe other people haven't seen. And it brings up the reality that we all, I believe, have a tendency to not see those who are disabled or to treat them in ways that that empathize or empathize, sorry, empathize or trivialize their disadvantage. For instance, blind people are often treated as if they can't hear either, which is exactly what the disciples did on this occasion. Notice they're talking about the man and he can hear them. People appreciate being genuinely cared for, but resent being treated as a case, a problem, or a curiosity. When relating to people who are suffering or disabled, we must try to empathize with them. Having been a parent of a disabled child, I've been there and done that in these situations. People were curious, wanting to know why our daughter was disabled, why she couldn't walk. But sometimes their curiosity betrayed their lack of compassion and care. Jesus sees the man, and he cares for the man. It's not about a theological question to resolve. It's about how to help a hurting person. The opening verse set the scene. There was a man born blind from birth. Who is responsible 
For the disciples, as for the Jews of the time, and for many others since, the answer is simple. Personal suffering of this nature is due to personal sin. The only uncertainty for them seemed to concern whether the man had committed some sin in the womb, even congenitally, or whether his parents had committed a sin before his birth that had caused his disability. But while the Bible allows for a general relationship between suffering and sin due to the fall, it refuses to permit the principle to be universalized in every case. Suffering is not always attributable to personal sin. Sometimes, of course, it may be, such as when suffering results from a drunk driver. But it is not always a one-to-one correlation. The good news here is Jesus not only sees the man who could not see, but he breaks the link between sin and sickness and helps people see differently. The healing here was not just a sample of Jesus' ability to restore sight to a man who was born blind. It also becomes a story and experience for the disciples to see differently and more deeply. They come to see a man, to see a man who couldn't see and who needed to be seen and cared for. And in breaking this bond between sin and sickness, the disciples are able to see differently something more deeply about God and who God is. The interest of the disciples was prompted then by theological curiosity rather than compassion. For them, the blind man was an unresolved riddle rather than a sufferer to be relieved. I remember times in seminary when it kind of felt like this where you're debating big theological questions in a classroom with thick textbooks instead of thinking about the people related to those questions who are wrestling with those questions and who have perhaps been spiritually abused or hurt by those kinds of questions. Jesus would say he didn't sin, nor did his parents. It happened so that the works of God could be seen in him. Again, the second point here is we see that Jesus not only sees the man who could not see, but Jesus breaks the link between sin and sickness. He creates a a great eternal principle. It wasn't just about the man's disability at the time, but about the work of God that would be seen in him. Miracles, you see, that Jesus does is both, are both about meeting the present need, but also about revealing Jesus more fully and completely so that we can see him. This issue had been brought up throughout the centuries and the years throughout scripture and, and life. We know this question was raised in the book of Job. Job went through tragic circumstances, leaving, uh, losing family and possessions. And there were those that gathered around questioning, what did you do? You must have done something to deserve all this. But as the book of Job unfolds, we see there also being a reality that it wasn't about anything that Job had done specifically but rather that the work of God could be seen in Job's life and be seen through Job's life. 
I remember spending many pages of my doctoral dissertation wrestling with this question. It was a personal question because of my daughter's disabilities, but it was also a question I wanted to be prepared to answer in ministry when people were wrestling with why they were suffering and why God would allow something into their lives that that just didn't seem to fit. And as I processed that question, seeing more and more in my own life and in the lives of others, That God is mysterious, but he has deeper plans and purposes for our lives than we can possibly fathom. We don't always understand one-to-one why we have an experience of difficulty or suffering or loss in our lives, but we can see something about God through those experiences. We can see that God is a God of compassion who like who here in Jesus sees us, sees us in our suffering and separates that connection between sin and suffering and eventually envelops it in himself in his death on the cross. Jesus, you see, has just taught us in John 8, I am the light of the world. I am the one who shines the light of God into this world. I'm the one who reveals God fully and completely. I want you to see him through me and in me. And now Jesus would say, while I am the world, in the world, I am the light of the world. And what he's saying is he wants us to capture the God light, essentially have that photograph of God and who he is in Jesus so that it captures our attention and we take it with us wherever we go, knowing this is what God is like. This is the way God loves and cares. When Jesus says, I am, and those great proclamations unfold in the gospel of John, he is revealing that he is God in the flesh, that he is God and he is shining God's light, but also that as we receive his light, we become light bearers. In places like Matthew 5.14, as it's already said, Jesus is the light of the world, but now when we receive him and welcome him, we become the light of the world. We become people that can help other people see Remember that the background of this passage, I'd love to talk to you afterwards, Mark. Let's get together and talk after, okay? After the story here, what we see is previously, Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles has already talked about how he's the light of the world. In the midst of the temple where there were candles there that represented the light of God for the the people of Israel, leading them through the Exodus, desert wandering. Well, that same place, as I talked about a few weeks ago, was the place where priests would go and and they would get water from this pool of Siloam and bring it to the temple and and throw it on the altar as an act of washing and cleansing for sin. So now Jesus, who has already spoken about being the light, who has already pointed to himself as the fulfillment of those rituals, sends a man to the pool that was called Salome, sent it means, he sends him there to free him of his blindness, but also soon send him out to share the good news of what he's experienced. Jesus fulfills the Feast of Tabernacles. He's the one who washes away our sin. He is the one who sets us free and enables us to see. Jesus is the one who reveals himself through the passage, but we also see that Jesus helps people see. He doesn't just point to himself and who he is in these actions. We also see his love and compassion. 
Jesus helps people see. First, he gives the blind man his sight. And we need to recall that giving sight to the blind was predicted as an activity of the Messiah in places like Isaiah 29, 18, 35, 5, and 42, 7. In other words, this particular miracle, the type of miracle that Jesus did more than any others, specifically pointed to who he was as our rescue, to who he was as our Messiah, to who he was as help from God on the way. When Jesus heals that man, he is pointing to himself, but he's also meeting a practical need. Why does he do it the way he does it? Spitting on the ground and making mud and putting it on his eyes? Why doesn't he just touch him and do it right away? Jesus wants us to see that he is Lord of the Sabbath and that he is the one who sets people free. And he's not only the one who sets people free, he's the one who sends people who are set free to then go and share about that experience so that other people can see. Jesus would set this man free, sending him forward, washing the mud from his eyes and enabling him to see. But there are others there as well. The neighbors, we're told. Jesus helps, tries to help them see The neighbors and those who had formerly seen him asked this question, isn't this the man? How then were your eyes opened? And in the pondering question of the neighbors, they get to hear fully well the good news of Jesus, that Jesus has the power to set that man free and set others free as well. The neighbors kind of reflect the the questions of those who see a transforming work of God in someone's life who has been set free by Jesus. Jesus. And are wondering and are wrestling. A few, uh, well, about six months ago now, I got to go to my 30th high school reunion. It had been delayed by two years. You can do the math. But I remember two questions that I often got at that reunion. You're really Mike Griffin? You lost a lot of hair on your head. I mean, what happened to that big fluffy mullet? Where'd that go? That was question one. Number two, what happened that you are a pastor? What work, like, what did God do? Because that did not seem like the trajectory you were on when we remember you. What did that lead to? An opportunity to share the good news of God that it penetrated my life. And has penetrated the life of the blind man. And who God seeks to penetrate the lives of those neighbors. You know, some of you grew up in this town and you're still living in this town. And part of the witness is people knew you when you were a kid. People know parts of your stories. Good, bad, challenging. But they wonder about the redemptive parts. They wonder about who you are today in light of who they remember you to be. The neighbors wrestling with those questions and asking the blind man, is that really you? What happened? Leads to an amazing opportunity to share the good news. There are those friends who are asking you questions. How did your eyes get open, they asked the man. The the formerly blind man said, it was the man called Jesus. He made some mud and spread it over my eyes and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I could see. 
The neighbors don't know what to do with this testimony. So they take him to the religious authorities to try to shine light on this experience. And for the Pharisees, we are simply told that Jesus tries to help them see, but the Pharisees here are challenged to see things differently. And what's happening here is so out of the box for them. There's, there's this rejection. It happened on the Sabbath, so it can't be true. Even though the Sabbath is about giving rest and about redemption, they, they, they reject God's work through Jesus in the life of this man because it just did not fit their stereotypes. The Pharisees are unwilling to see because they know that healing would have implications for them. The amazing reverse of the gospel here is the man who could not see did not have that disability because of sin, but now the sin of the Pharisees disables them from seeing, right? They can't see what God is doing because it would have to cause them to change, and they don't want to change. And so because Jesus broke their petty rules, they immediately decide he wasn't from God. The astonishing fact of the man's newly given vision eluded this group as if they were blind. They simply could not see. Jesus here is to be believed in. Jesus is the light and the judge who who saves and saves the world. He's also, though, a blinding light, not to those who admit their blindness. For those, he gives sight. But he becomes a blinding light to those who proclaim they can see in themselves. And in their boast of vision are blind. Think about the Apostle Paul. Saul on his way to Damascus with letters in hand to persecute the followers of Jesus in that place experiences a blinding light. He's made blind. He thought he could see and rejected Jesus and his authority. But through that blinding, flashing light on the road to Damascus and Saul, who becomes Paul's temporary blindness, God enabled him to see. And Paul's still enabling us to see today, isn't he? More clearly through his letters that we read. The point here is that if we think we can see in ourselves, we're actually blind. And that's a hard reality to accept. But if we admit our blindness because of our sinfulness, Jesus can enable us to see our need for a Savior. And He, as our Savior, can set us free. Through this experience, we see things about Jesus and we we see how Jesus helps people see. But lastly, we also see that we can help other people see. In verse 5, it said, we are to do the work of Him who sent us. Jesus does the work of the Father, sent out by the Father to accomplish his mission and fulfill his purposes. But then we see this invitation to join Jesus on mission. The existence of human suffering around us, like, around us like this blind man, is not simply just a question to ponder. It's a call to help. Jesus links the disciples with himself in referring to his work in anticipation of his teaching in chapters 13 through 16. In a larger sense, it anticipates the coming ages when the risen Lord would be at work in the world through his people, the age that we are living in today. 
For Jesus himself set people free to see, but he also wanted those people who were set free to get in the game and get involved to become members of his body that help other people see Jesus. Evidently or eventually, Jesus would speak of his disciples as his co-workers to join him and to come and be with him on and do the works that he was doing. And friends, that includes you and me. We must never doubt our role or significance in being witnesses to the light of Christ. He's invited you. He's invited me. He invited a blind man who could not see to become part of the mystery of revealing his presence and power on earth. We watch this young man emerge from his bondage to darkness and his life as a beggar to a place where he would boldly be able to carry on and carry out the mission God gave him. It's all based on personal description, isn't it? This man doesn't have all the theological answers and God doesn't ask us to have all the theological answers either. But rather, we are given clearer vision to see something of Jesus when he sets us free. And our personal description of Jesus to others can make tremendous impact. John encourages all of of us whose eyes, hearts, and minds have been opened by Christ to speak out for the Lord. The lesson is for us because the formerly blind man's vision of Jesus got clearer and clearer as he reflected on what had happened to him and as he listened to the accusers frantically trying to discredit what he knew but was undeniably true. Friends, the invitation is simply to tell your story, to not have to solve the problem of suffering, the question of theodicy, but to simply say, He set me free to simply say, I had a daughter with disabilities and parenting her was tremendously challenging, but I have the joy of knowing she's now with Jesus and God set me free even in the midst of my grief and the sorrow of that tragedy to parent differently, joyfully and fully. That while my kid's the shortest one on the basketball court, he's got the biggest smile on his face. To have those moments in time where you're set free from those things that have bound you in the past and those sorrows that stuck. And you're set free to see something differently about Jesus. This formerly blind man's testimony teaches us to go through this transition that he went through from simply seeing Jesus as a man to a powerful prophet who has the ability to set us free, to somebody who is worthy of our following as his disciples, to realize that he is from God and ultimately he was the son of God to, sent to uniquely reveal God and ultimately our, our ultimate act and need is to bow down and worship him freely. There's a detour we can take away from that mission and call that the blind man exemplifies for us. It's his parents in the passage. Like the parents, we can pass the buck and shrink back. When the Pharisees ask them, who is, is this your son? Did, did Jesus really set him free? Instead of step, stepping forward and 
proclaiming that Jesus had freed him from his disability, the parents decide to not get involved. And instead of praising Jesus for their son, as their son's healer, they respond, ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. The parents see, did, did not support their son's story. They didn't deny his story, but neither did they support his claim as the son had done. And every time we fail to speak, every time we shrink back because of some lack of confidence or uncertainty, instead of speaking up for Jesus and the work he's done in us and in others, we become like those parents, worried about the social implications, worried about getting involved. The parents knew if they stood up for Jesus, they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. And socially, that was a big risk to take. But wasn't it worth it to stand by their son? Who stood by his testimony for what Jesus had done? And what about you? Are you willing to stand by the son? And to speak to what Jesus has done for you? Church, I encourage you to take risks. Jesus has intervened in each of our lives. After the man's kicked out of the synagogue, we're told that Jesus found the man. He not only saw the man, he found the man. And he asked him, do you want to believe in the Son of Man? And the man is so ready. He says, who is he? Tell me, I'm ready. And Jesus said, he's the one who speaks to you. And the man bowed down in worship and offered his life to Jesus completely. And all this, John wants us to see. Four times he uses this phrase, and that is, of course, what the passage is all about. It isn't just about the man born blind who can now see. It's about John's readers, you and me, who are being led towards the light which is in Jesus himself. It is the great reversal of the gospel once again. A blind man who comes to see Jesus clearly and religious leaders who claim to see who are confirmed in their blindness. But what does it help us see? Again, that every follower of Jesus can come to see by seeing Jesus and helping other people to see him. The next step I want to invite you into in response to this passage is this. Think through those aspects of your story with Jesus that can be shared in order to help other people see who he is and that can bring healing into their lives. Think of the before and where you were, perhaps without a sense of belonging or identity without Jesus' presence in your life. Think of the how. What were the circumstances? What was the, the brokenness that you were experiencing? What was, what was the loss? What was the hardship that Jesus healed you from and through when you came to him? And what has been the after? What has your life been like since? What joy do you now have because of Jesus? What has he enabled you to see that you could not see clearly before? And what is he doing now? For me, each and every day as we're reading God's word as a church, he's reminding me of just the joy and the fullness of his word. Reading these passages from Genesis that are just these rich stories. Hearing of the resurrection of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the disciples' call to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you 
to the very end of the age and to watch the church go and do it. And for me, the joy is watching the church go and do it.